0: Hey guys, welcome back to the Paradigm Project. We have a treat for you guys today. We are joined by former Paradigm mentor Asher Cox and Sarah Arneson. We are going to take a deep dive into the Constitution today. What does
1: it even say?
0: What does it mean? Why
1: should I care?
0: Stay tuned and find out.
1: Before we get into the Constitution, Asher, why don't you introduce yourself for those who don't know you?
2: Hi, glad to be here. Thanks. Um, so if you don't know, I was a mentor at Paradigm for the last seven years. And I left, regrettably, last year. Um, I work for an internet company with my brother that he owns. And we help make businesses better. We do anything we can to help everybody love what they're doing and do it better. So that's been fun. In my spare time, I like to eat. <laughs> I do.
0: Congratulations. I do
2: like that. Thank you.
0: I don't like that all the time. I eat every day even Sometimes. when
3: I don't have spare time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like to read and I like to watch movies and then I like to figure out what is great or terrible about them. That's one of my favorite things to do, which is why I'm
1: here. That quote from Ratatouille goes, In many ways, the work of a critic is easy.
0: This is the guy with, exactly. like, the black eye shadow. You find
2: the truth of yes. what it is. Exactly. I love it. The critic is actually very, very good. Mm-hmm. Good writer.
1: So, Sarah, you have been on the podcast before for our I Can Do Hard Things episode. But with this episode, we're talking about the Constitution. So why were you interested on in coming on to this episode?
3: First of all, I love working with Asher. And Asher and I talk a lot. We read a lot together and talk about it a lot. And so I... I'm just always up for something with Asher. I love government, though, and I love founding documents, and I love reading those sorts of things and talking about them. My minor in college was political science because I just didn't want to give it up, and that was going to be my major for a long time until I decided to do music. I got into the Constitution when I was in seventh grade. I was homeschooled, and we had these afternoon classes that went till four, and then My teacher decided to start a 4 to 5.30 class on the Constitution, and I thought it was the worst idea ever, and she made us read the whole Constitution and interpret every sentence and say what it meant, and I understood it pretty well, but I just thought it was incredibly boring until we got to the amendments, and then something stuck out to me, and I was really mad, and I'd been leaning back in my seat the whole time. And I just, like, leaned super forward. My chair hit the ground, and I was like, this is not right. This is not how things are going. And I've kind of been hit on on government and the founding principles of America ever since.
1: Asher, since we're going to be talking about the Constitution today and, like, founding documents and stuff, what made you interested in them in the first place?
2: That's a good question. So I started... When I was going to college, I was trying to pick a major and the only subject I was remotely interested in was history. So I was looking into history classes and I didn't want to take history classes because you memorize dates and facts. And um, so I was looking into political science which is the application of those dates and facts. Why does it matter? How do countries interact with each other? How do organizations interact with each other? And what are the consequences of those interactions? And you have to know history. You have to know the dates and facts, but you have to know why you have to know those. So I really, really liked, I finally got into the application of history, studying political science. And then um, really the opportunities right out of college for that is either to go to law school or to teach. So I... Found this great opportunity at Paradigm where I could teach. And I started really just learning how to teach and being mentored by amazing mentors here and teaching english and literature and then i was i was able to have the opportunity of teaching the government classes for the seniors and that's where i really found this passion for the founding documents and because i had to explain them and get kids who didn't care about them to understand and to love them i really understood what they said and had to simplify it down to the core principles and can't get enough of it some good stuff in our founding
0: i appreciate when things are simplified
1: yeah (laughs) it's very nice So you studied political science, and you said there's two options, teaching or law school. Um, I'm interested in political science and law school. What turned you away from law school? What was like, oh, teaching is the better option for me? Um, That's a good question.
2: First, a little side note on that. What I have found, especially with my new job, is that studying political science um, is incredibly helpful for management, which I don't mean be a manager, but I mean human interaction, that you need to know how groups of people interact. What are good interactions and what are bad interactions and how to deal with conflict. And I feel like political science covered that better than I expected it to. So it's really a helpful core or foundation in basically anything you decide to do. Now, if you want to pursue, actually pursue political science, um, I was turned off of political science or of law school um, because at the end of the the four years of my bachelor's degree, it was less about government and constitution and more about current events and politics. I would say what I did consciously was divide government and politics. And I still do that in my study. And the way I taught was I treat them as two completely different things. And I think they're, they're both absolutely necessary to study and to learn. You have to know what's going on in order to apply what has been. However, I, it was not my thing to figure out how to write law or run for office or deal with the conflict of laws I wanted to know about the founders and about our people and about the principles and where we came from. So what I found in teaching is that we're lacking that more than we're lacking the study of politics. So we all need to be updated on current events. And basically all our politicians and lawyers know political events and they know politics. What we don't know is historical events. We don't know what the Constitution is or what our founding documents are. And because we're lacking that more, I wanted to push that more, especially with the youth is where I saw the biggest need and the, the greatest consequence, where the greatest ad- advantage of that would be. Oh, I was, <laughs> okay, once I had to require American history of teenagers and realize you don't get to apply politics. You don't get to say, I think this law should be passed until you know why it is or why it isn't and what the consequences will be. You have to know your history first. That's when I was really kind of appalled, blown away. I did not study the constitution in college. I read one Federalist paper. Um, and I think that's, I don't even think I was required to read the declaration. So it was so, and I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it until later that it was so heavy politics, um, through most of it. So that's what, I don't know, I'm really driven into the court. I also, as far as life experience goes, in the middle of my college, I took a break and I went and lived in Eastern Europe for a year and a half. And I came back and I was studying government anyway, and that actually changed every class that I took. Uh, Suddenly I was studying American founding because I saw very clearly the consequence of communism. So I was in Bulgaria and I was there 20 years after the Berlin Wall fell, and they had not recovered in any way, it was impossible to create a new government, and the people were still living as if the government took care of everything. So everyone was poor, everyone was going without food, and nobody was doing anything about it. And they were complaining about it. And you could see in their demeanor, they were hunched over, they were old and sad, and the youth are really great. <laughs> they have a little different experience, but but coming back, I realized what what the consequence of freedom is, of what a responsible government is, and that's what the American people are. And I didn't take it for granted so much that this is the way we live, but that this is what we've created. Somebody very consciously created my ability to live the way I'm living today, and someone else, somewhere else created a government that was so self-centered, they created a generation that cannot take care of themselves, several generations. So then my thesis, my final thesis ended up being the comparison between the American Republic and communism and the consequence on the people, not the consequence on the group or the country, but on each individual person. So then I was just very passionate about this founding and who those people were that decided these things, decided the constitution and the declaration and decided that was where we stand so that in 20 generations, they still have an opportunity to live and change.
1: Is it just simply the difference of after, you know, the Revolutionary War, or even beforehand, we took action, and we built a government? That's the difference between us and Bulgaria? Yeah, good question.
2: So, um, it's all of, I mean, it's really complicated, right? And it's all of the things. Part of it, which I think we take for granted, and we kind of ignore, is the 200 years before the Revolution. And... What we had was a bunch of outcasts that go to this random island that nobody cares about. And they live free for 200 years. And in that 200 years, they get into all these problems and no government stepped in and said, I care or I want to profit. So we had people who had to deal with their problems. And the first thing, one of the first things they created was county and then state governments. Almost immediately, they said, we need local government. That's what solves problems of groups of people extremely valuable. And nobody stopped it. So we had county governments going on the entire East Coast for 200 years that were very successful and were extreme failures. We had a, there was a county in Georgia that was the epitome of communism. Somebody stepped in and made all the rules and controlled everything and it collapsed. And then nobody else tried that again. Like we got to see on a very small scale, all of the forms of government and the ones that lasted those 200 years were the ones that ended up in the constitution. And nowhere else in the planet in our history has anybody been able to experiment for that long and that freely and done it. So that was a huge deal is our preparation. We also had by the time the Revolutionary War starts, we have people who consider themselves free. They did not have to take their freedom from anybody. They were born free. And this is where Jefferson's monumentous statement comes that we have the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was a brand new idea that no one had ever put into words or really conscious thought before. So unlike most revolutions, other revolutions had to take their freedoms back from somebody else. A king had a pressed them or taken over, and they had to take their freedom back, which means their freedom could be taken by somebody else. And the American Revolution wasn't about taking their freedoms. It was about saying, I have freedoms, and you don't get to take them. It's a very different perspective. Interesting. Okay. So in Democracy in America, which is interesting because he's, he's writing in 1830, and he's just coming out of the French Revolution, which was about the same time as the American Revolution, just a little bit after. And he's comparing the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And he says, democracy leads, he's talking about democratic revolutions. Democracy leads men not to draw near to their fellow creatures, but democratic revolutions lead them to shun each other and perpetuate in a state of equality the animosities which the state of inequality engendered. That's the epitome of the French Revolution, that we're extremely divided. I kill the division and then make sure we're divided again because I deserve to be better than I was. That's what happened and why it collapsed right after. The great advantage of the Americans is that they have arrived at a state of democracy without having to endure a democratic revolution, and that they are born equal instead of becoming so. That's something in our history that no other country has, just like passed on from generations, that we are equal, and it's it's important to fight for that. Equality in the sense of, I have unalienable rights given to me by God— of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
1: Okay, so we're, we we fought not because we are going to earn equality, we are fighting because we are equal. Is that... Yes. yes.
2: Yes. Because if I can get something from you, you can take it back. Right. If I'm fighting for something because you're hurting what I have, then I need to remove myself from the situation because I have it. Yes, I'm protecting the thing. Yes. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. It, it's just a different mindset of I am a free person and I have rights versus... I want rights, give them to me. Because it's still giving power to the other person, even through the, your thought process. That, that makes a lot of sense.
0: <laughs> One question I would have is what, how are you defining equality or like equal? Because there's a lot of debate in like current events and stuff like that that we are not born equal. And that passage saying that the difference between our revolution and the French revolution is that Americans are born equal instead of having to find their equality.
2: Yeah, good question. I'm glad you asked because you can't just throw around the word equality. <laughs> Very dangerous. Um, so one thing the founders are really clear about is that you are equal before the law. As far as if you read equality in a founding document, it means equal before the law. They were not stupid. They did not know, like think we were all going to be born the same height and same weight and same skin color and with the same jobs. Like That's not real. And even the same opportunities. We are not equal in opportunity but we are equal before the law and we are equal under God, which means we get to treat each other like people. That's what we're equal in. And that is bigger than we think that that means like, maybe you were just saying, I have something that you, I didn't get from another person and that you can't actually take from me and I get to defend. And that's being alive and making choices. That is what we are all equal in.
3: So according to the declaration, when we talk about equality, there's only a couple things that we're equal in. It says men are created equal and that they are endowed by the creator with certain inalienable rights. So we're equal in our inalienable rights, which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Which I think is a really important distinction because Tocqueville talks about how if all we're doing is is being focused on equality, then we are motivated by fear that we're going to lose our equality. But if our focus is freedom, then we're striving to preserve it. So if we see our equality as connected to rights, which make us free, then we strive to preserve them. And right after it talks about unalienable rights in the Declaration, it talks about how we secure these rights, which is protect them, right? Or preserve them. And that's why we create governments. And that's what makes the U.S. Constitution different is we are not fearfully trying to preserve equality that was lost or we're fearing to be lost, but we are proactively securing our freedom by protecting our rights and allowing the power we have to govern ourselves to be given partially to elected officials through laws that govern them So that the government is by the people who have the right to govern and we're giving that to someone, lending them that power in an organized way.
1: Or we should be doing that. I see a lot. There's a lot of arguments now that we are not equal and there's not equality in America. And we get a lot of not even debate or discussion. We get a lot of just fighting and disunification between even just the parties or people because there is a disbelief that everybody is equal. But under, you know, the Declaration of Independence and, you know, the way the Constitution lays out our rights, it just, it lays out our equality right there for us. We are all given these rights, or we should have been.
2: (laughs) So Tocqueville analyzes that pretty well. Make sure you analyze that in the equality-liberty one. He compares the action towards freedom and the action towards equality. Okay, and I would change his vocabulary just a little bit for our own day because the word freedom is also tossed around willy-nilly. So, but he's not talking about the freedom to do anything. He's not talking about the freedom to act. He's talking about freedom within responsibility, kind of the way we talk about the word liberty. That's what he's talking about. Anyway, so he compares equality and liberty and exactly what you're saying. If I'm fighting for equality, then it's out of passion and it's about something I want right now. The positive consequences of equality can be seen immediately and the negative consequences of equality are postponed. So even if it'll bring about something really bad, my kids will figure it out, but I won't. The opposite is true of liberty. The positive consequences of liberty almost never happen... Okay, that's not true, but they happen generations down the road. And the negative consequences of liberty, being responsible, having to take responsibility for my actions and seeing my actions for what they are, happen immediately. And so we easily fall into this fight for equality for what I want right
1: now because I will be benefited immediately. I'll get a little prize. So what do you think we're seeing now? Are we seeing the negative fallout from actions taken, you know before us by our foundation? Or are we being confused with the immediate consequences of our own choices? Good question. It's definitely
2: both because we've been making choices for a long time. However, um, with even just in the recent year where we've had new platforms being presented, new groups kind of coming forward in demanding rights. And I'm not saying they're wrong, that we should be treating each other better. That is absolutely truth. However, what they're asking for is an immediate answer. And that means we're fighting for equality and not thinking through what are the my actions right now? If I get what I'm asking for, what will be the consequence for two or three generations later? But because we are fighting so hard, we are paying for the consequences of someone else's choice for equality that have kind of sifted through time and we're also setting up we're getting what we want but we're setting up um some long-term things. consequences yes. for equality
1: later <laughs> i think um before we go further into like a modern evo- modern evaluation of what's going on right now because that is going to be talked about next episode um i think maybe we should uh talk about the constitution first because it does lay out our government as well as you know the bill of rights and a lot of the amendments stick to the text people <laughs> so in the Declaration, that's what they're talking about, right, is people who are
3: feeling like they're not getting the rights that they had, so they threw off their government and they created another one. And so I think it's important, if if we're wanting to apply this, to look back at the founding of the Constitution and and look at what principles they thought were important and what principles were built on. So my question for you guys is, what principles is the Constitution founded on? It's a loaded question. Um sure is. Like, what are we founded on? What are the principles that the
1: Constitution of the United States is founded on? Okay. Um, I'll I'll just jump in and say a little bit of what I've analyzed in my senior thesis, which is not all of the you know principles, but the ones that I could think of when I was writing. So so far, the principles intended for you know the United States, which I've were laid out in President George Washington's farewell address, which he was encouraging the people to continue um, striving for unity to make sure that the separation of powers, which is also laid out in the Constitution. Um, is being maintained and is not blending into one because then we will fall into despotism, as well as maintaining good foreign affairs, um, which also includes not relying too heavily on other countries. So having good foreign affairs, but not too good, if you know what I mean. Wow. Wow. I also touched on another principle that was intended for um, our country was that of religion and morality. There's a quote, John Adams, he says, our constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And then James Madison even expressed um, in the Federalist paper number 55, sufficient virtue among men for self government is required. So I believe that the founding fathers intended for the American people to be religious and moral. I don't want
2: to jump in on that. Washington says in the farewell address religion and morality are indispensable
1: supports. Yes.
2: So while they're not written into a government, if they're not part of the foundation, then the government doesn't matter.
1: Well, if you think about the history of America, it makes so much sense. Why did the pilgrims leave? Why? Because they were being prosecuted for their religion and they left for religious freedom. And what is encouraged is the right to be able to worship and to gather and to have religious freedom. And it just makes so much sense when you look at the history.
0: Something I'm not quite understanding is like the point of religion in this government, because I I understand the moral side of it, because like if you have good moral people who abide by the same morals, then government can be... But I don't, I don't understand the to worshiping of the be religion. It the same
1: morals, though. I think we need people who have a sense of morality to make good choices for our government, to make honest choices for our government. It is not necessarily about me and you having the exact same set of morals or the exact same religion. It is the mindset of a moral people.
3: Quote Benjamin Franklin. He says, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And I think you could like virtue is very close to morality or religious, right? Those kind of go together. Uh, as nations become corrupt and vicious, they have need of masters. And I think that kind of goes back to the founding principles. The The constitution is based on the belief that the people hold the power and that government drives its power from the people. And people have power because they're living up to a high moral standard or they're living virtuously and religion can often tie into that. And the only way that the Constitution works to be a representative of the people who hold the true power is for the people to live at a level where they're, they're holding that power. And the second they become corrupt, then they need someone to be in charge, right? And the Constitution no longer works because the Constitution is not set up to be a master of someone or in charge.
1: I can't remember who, who said this. You'll know, Miss Cox. Um, It was... Oh that government is a necessary evil. Thomas Paine.
2: Duh. Yep. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> I want to add another caveat to Daniel's question. Why do we talk so much about religion and morality? Um, especially where the Constitution itself is pretty clear about okay, is it very, very clear that no government can create a religion or demand a religion, and yet all the founders are very clear about you must have a religion in order for this to work, right, which are contradictory statements. So what I think is important in the definitions here of religion and morality is that morality is what you guys have been talking about, a way of being, and religion is the manifestation of that or the action you choose to take. So we can do anything we want, at all. And if we're not accountable, if I don't have to stand up and say it out loud once in a while, it gets weaker all the time. So if I don't ever have to show up in public to defend my morality, then I will lose it. So going to church or having a group of people that you serve with or declaring any form of morality gives me that concrete structure that morality needs. Morality is very abstract and very vague, where religion is something I can hold on to and I can see. And if I don't have both, then I don't have either. Because you can also have a religion without having morality, and that is also corrupted and not, I mean, that's pride and to be seen of the world. So I think that's why religion is part of all of this. And I love that we see the variety of the founders of their religions, but their morality is very, very close. So it's not about which religion as much as it is about acting the morality that you choose.
1: Yeah, I think morality and, you know, religion, I think... That, oh, another reason why they're so important to have a religious and moral people or just a moral people, it's important because it aids in our decision making. So if you th- if I even think about the election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, what was everyone saying? It's just choosing the lesser of two evils. That doesn't mean anything. If we had really been making choices, voting on our representation, our senators, our House of Representatives, if we were voting on people that made honest choices and that were moral people, if we were taking our morals into consideration when when making these decisions, I feel like we would not be in the place where we feel like we are electing criminals into office.
2: So in the individualism reading, um, Tocqueville says... He comments on that, that when you become an individual and you rely completely on yourself, that slips into egotism is what he calls it, which is just relying on yourself to an extreme. And then that relies on exactly the setting that you've just laid out for us, that now it's all about benefit and it's about the results instead of about what is right or about what is good. And Fife actually made the analogy when I was asking about this of um, that we are now, our mentality is voting someone in based on results. So if I'm voting someone in so someone else won't win, that's voting them in based on the results of an election, as opposed to voting in liberty. When you make a bet, you don't bet on a result, you bet on a horse. You pick the thing you want to stand up on, or the thing that you want to excel, and you work towards that. You don't work towards avoiding something else or manipulating something else, which is a huge core principle of the Constitution. Um, one of what I would say is one of the core foundations that the Constitution gives us is responsibility is knowing that I have to take responsibility for my actions. I love this example, Ava, what you laid out with the foreign affairs idea, that Washington makes it very clear. And he's talking about countries that you treat everyone kindly. You make sure you are on good terms and you do whatever you can, the very best you can to be on good terms with everybody else. But you do not rely on them so much that you're trapped into something you can't control or you can't figure out later. And what's so powerful about the farewell address is that as he's outlining these major principles that we see worked out in a global scale, he's talking about the individual. That if a human can't do this with his neighbor, well, it doesn't matter at a national scale. And so this foundation of responsibility is people with people. And if you can't get along with your family or if you're not getting along with your neighbors, then, then it won't escalate. It won't get bigger. And we all have to act out what we expect our government to act out.
1: Um, I think, along with other principles, I think if we want to find principles that are, you know, directly linked to the Constitution, why don't we just turn to the Constitution um, and go through it and start going through it a little bit? Um, not yet. I have a little premise
2: I want okay, to add go to ahead. that thought. <laughs> um, so one thing I think we miss about the Constitution, because it's super dry and super boring. Same. <laughs> it's a list of facts. Like, how many representatives do we get and how long do they serve? It's literally a list of facts. So sometimes it's hard to find. I think it's hard to find principles within it. So we have to know a little bit about why it was written in the first place. And one thing I want to point out that Locke really, really drives home, that Jefferson clearly wanted to know, was um, types of law. So Locke breaks out three different types of law. And first he talks about natural law, that there's nothing any human on the planet could change. If you jump off a rock, you go down. That's natural law. Okay, it's on the planet and there's nothing we can do about it. Now, some people argue that if we go into space and we've broken the law of gravity, but what I've done, we have not broken the law of gravity. Gravity didn't go away. I figured out how to use the law of gravity in a different way because the whole idea of space travel is understanding the law of gravity more. The other kind of law that Locke talks about is legislative law, and that's the actual laws we have to follow. The speed limit is legislative law. I elected a legislator. They wrote law. I have to follow it. The other kind of law that Locke really drives home is is called positive law, coming from the root posit, which means a foundation of an argument, like the premise of an argument. So positive law is law that governs the lawmaker. So the lawmaker has to follow certain rules. And that's what the Constitution is. It is not legislative law. There's nothing in there that I could actually follow or do. There's no action I can do to follow what it says. It's law telling my lawmakers what they can and cannot do and that's very important because that's the thing that's been missing in other governments when you have a king or even a group of people that are working together for i mean like aristocracy basically if they don't have rules that tell them what they can and cannot do then they can do anything so the beauty of the constitution is that our lawmakers are under the law they are not above the law we are all under the same we are equal under the law Which is kind of the point. Ooh. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Ta-da! We made it happen. So it's really important in, in looking at the Constitution to say, is my lawmaker following this law? Because if they are not, then I need to remove their power. And we need someone in who is virtuous, who will obey laws. And we tend to get kind of haughty when we get a little power. We say, well, I mean, you have to obey the law, but I made the law. Like, that makes me equal to the law. And it does not. So that brings up the other principle that you have that you said the separation of powers. And when we separate powers, what we've just done is added a check on power itself. And that is one of the biggest manifestations of of a principle in the Constitution is a check on power that it can stop. We get to control who has power, how much they have, and when we take it away, which is a huge power that the Constitution gives us. More than what it says we can do, the fact that it exists and that I can say how much power you have and when and how you use it gives me power over my representatives who are in turn telling me what I can and cannot do. That is a huge check between the people and the representative. I tell them what they can do so that they can tell me virtuous actions that I can do. Which back to your question, let's break this down. I want to skip to Article 5, I hope, um which is the amendment process, such a powerful thing to put in your constitution. And we talk about the founders and this is our route and they knew everything and they were well studied, which is absolutely true. They're the best. However, they accepted that they were also making mistakes and that times would change. That they were dealing with problems that we would not be dealing with later and that they could not foresee the problems that were coming. So to put in a whole section in your rule book that says you can change this, be careful with it, but you can is a huge compliment to their humility and their ability to understand what they were actually creating and the people they were influencing, which is important for us to understand that it's not a perfect document and that we can change it and that we should control the powers of the people telling us what to do, making laws. Okay, there's one article down.
3: Can I just add to that? I think just to summarize for me mostly, but... It sounds like what you're saying is the Founding Fathers established a nation that is ruled by law and not a person. And even within the Constitution, which, of course, they wrote, like they penned these words, they created, as part of it, a law about how to alter the document so we can continue
2: to be ruled by law. Huge, huge, huge. Which takes us to Article 6. which is the supremacy clause, which just says the constitution is the law is the highest law of the land. There is no human being who is above the constitution, not ever and there cannot be, which means we are actually equal under the law. If there can be a human that can escape the law, then we have a king. And whatever however he wants to spell his title or whatever he wants to call it, we have something else that's out of our control. And the supremacy clause protects that limited power that the government has. And limited government is, like, the thing. It's the new idea that the founders came up with.
3: Which makes being an elected leader a really sacred responsibility, which is why we promise to follow the Constitution when we are sworn into
2: office. Which takes us to Article (laughs) 1. So, according to Locke, legislative power is the greatest power any government official has. It's the grandiose power of powers. And legislation means, or to legislate means to make law. So basically, the legislator gets to tell you what you can and cannot do, which is a kingly power. It's very important and it's very easy to get too far and it's very sacred. And in fact, Locke uses the word fiduciary over and over and over again every time he describes any legislation, which means trusted. The core of legislation is trusted. If I don't trust you, you better not be telling me what to do. And I better not choose somebody to tell me what to do who I do not trust. So um, led, so that's why Article 1 is the legislative branch, because it is the most important. We st- And they have the most guidelines, they have the most instructions, because making laws to tell other people what to do is extremely important and can be the most dangerous. Which is interesting.
3: It's a huge branch of the government. There's two houses in the legislative branch, and it has the most elective officials on the national level of government. And it takes forever to make a law because the process to make a bill into a law takes a really long time and has a lot of limits on what can start where and who can do what.
1: Not to mention that the executive branch could come in and just say, you're going to stop for a little bit. Right. Right. Which is, again, to check they can just do. I mean, there's so many checks on the
2: legislative power because they're telling you what to do. And I think the the Constitution, like what you said, what the executive can do, errs on the side of them not being able to tell you what to do, as opposed to giving them more power. It stops them more often than it helps them.
3: Which gives power back to the people, right? It's assuming the people can govern themselves and we need fewer laws because we take responsibility as citizens.
2: Which is one of the core principles, Ava, that you brought up earlier is that we're based on morality. The point of the legislative law is to help me figure out what morality means. Not to tell me what to do. Otherwise, we could just have a king if we're just going to, like, command people around. That's what communism basically is, is to force morality. This idea is saying, we're going to mess up a bunch of times, but you're actually going to be moral in the end. It's going to be harder.
1: Plus, your fingers are going to be so entwined in it, it's not really our problem. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. That's not true. (laughs) I think it's important when we're talking about the legislative branch, um...
3: In relationship to the Constitution and the national government, that we remember that the two houses are elected differently. And that's another important check on powers, right? Every state gets two senators. And then the House of Representatives gets a proportionate number to their population, which just gives more power back to the states. It shows that the Founding Fathers really wanted to protect the supremacy of the states. And the supremacy probably isn't the right word.
1: Well, I think it's a pretty appropriate word. I mean, it's a little extreme, But the whole point is, like, this is for the people. And so it is kind of like the supremacy of the states. There should be no, I don't know, there should be no supremacy in the legislative branch. It's just completely their duty to, you know, be for the people. Right. And be responsible
3: back to the states. Yeah. right. They shouldn't be making a law that the states could have made for themselves. They should only be making laws that are too big for the states to be able to make because they deal with two different states or something that deals with all of us with trade or something like that. But there's not a lot that they need to take care of. The states should take care of most of it.
2: Which I think is one of the core principles of the constitution is local government. And it's easy to ignore that one because national government is so much more efficient. It's not very efficient, but it's certainly more efficient. And the more we rely on it, the more efficient it becomes. But again, with our history and where we came from, the local governments were what created the national government. It was very, very much built one step at a time from bottom up in experience and even in its structure. And so they really wanted to honor the local government. The smaller you can deal with a situation, the better the situation is dealt with. And the more you're dealing with the people who will have the consequences of that and who were involved in the situation. So if you can deal with it
1: between two people, that's better than any external group. I also believe that local government is super important because they understand the demographic that they are living amongst. And that's something the federal government cannot understand because America is built from immigrants. Let's not forget that. And so there are different demographics everywhere. Just like, you know, we live in Utah, we have a lot of white people, but it's like a lot different from what you're gonna find in like Kansas. And we cannot be enforcing the same laws into people who have different beliefs and different cultures. Absolutely. And anytime, the bigger you get, the more we have to pick
2: one group that gets to win. And the smaller you get, the more everybody actually compromises and understands what the result really was. And That's super, super important to remember. If you can make it small, make it small. Which takes us to Article 4. <laughs> Article 4 is the creation of the states and the powers of the states and the responsibility of the states, which Madison lays out for us in the Federalist Papers as what I am kind of making these my words of Madison's is the fourth branch of government, which we don't usually think about it that way, but I like to give it that much weight because local government is such a principle of the Constitution, that what we have is Article 1, 2, and 3 are how how the government will work in D.C. or like for everyone all the time. And then... The reason Article 4 is next is because it's equally part of the government structure. And Article 1, 2, and 3 are a horizontal separation. So they check each other and they make sure that they can't grow too big. So no one branch. We don't have a king in the executive branch. We don't have lawmakers who can do whatever they want, tell us to do whatever we want. And we don't have judges who just decide everything for everybody. So they check each other. But we also need, just like you said, to not have... One group of people deciding everything for everybody—we have to break it down into smaller pieces that are localized, that know the the demographic, that know the geography, that know the particular situations and the property levels too are huge and cultures and need and even like people who are more spread out and people like cities and country just behave really really differently and have really different needs. So I grew up in Wyoming, and there were always issues with matching local government with national government because we had so much land, and we lived it and worked on it, and we saw the consequences of it going away, and there was always national laws being passed that were like, on paper, sounded really, really good about protecting wildlife and giving more people to expand, and in reality, it was destroying. Okay, story... So there was this law, I think it was that you can't hunt deer. I think it was something along those lines, some hunting laws. And there are a lot of hunting laws and those are usually fine, but they were pushing it because of something that was going on in Yellowstone, which is a national owned piece of property, which is always a big deal in Wyoming. So the hunting laws became more strict. And because there was so many deer around Yellowstone, which you can't kill anything within that land. So usually the consequences were the land right outside where the animals would kind of spread. The ecosystem kind of got out of balance and the wolves went crazy because there was so much to eat. Like we helped hunting deer actually helps keep the wolf population in check in Yellowstone. And there were just like all kinds of problems with wolves leaving the National Park and getting into farms and crops and cattle and other kind of situations that had not been a problem before. Again, the deer number looks good, but the consequences were very, very bad. There was another one where they... um always a problem with cutting lumber. It sounds like a really dumb issue, which I think on a national level in the city sounds like a dumb issue. It's very important the kind of lumber and how much lumber you cut down. So there are all kinds of laws going on all the time about lumber. There was a couple years when I was in high school where the cutting lumber laws were more strict, so you couldn't cut lumber. And because there were so many trees and so much foliage everywhere that wasn't being taken care of, there was a bug it's just like a little red bug that does nothing to humans it just like sits there but it eats trees and there were so many trees and they were getting so crowded that the bug just went crazy and got out of control and started eating the forest in the park where you can't do anything anyway and then it left the park it was too much and left the park and trees weren't being cut down outside the park so it didn't stop and so it spread I lived eight hours from Yellowstone and we had lumber on the mountains, just falling apart. And I grew up with a wood burning stove. We didn't have any heat in our house except the wood wood burning stove. So we would go wooden, which is the technical term every (laughs) summer. (laughs) We went four or five times a summer up the mountain with seven kids, piled into one truck and we would cut down. My dad would cut down trees and we would chop them up and we would haul them into the truck and then go home and then haul them into the basement and chop them all up. And, and that was, we had to have a winter supply of wood or we went cold and it was real cold. (laughs) Another story. I remember I was actually, I was going to school. So it's like seven in the morning and I was finally warm. I was like, it's so nice today and we the temperature was negative one and it had been negative 20 for so long that i was like taking off my coat mm, anyway toasty grew up in russia those kinds of issues are a really big deal to keep local. Now, you do have to have virtuous people because you can make a lot of profit off of cutting down wood and killing wolves and stuff like that. But, that, which is why national government gets involved. I have to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> I just a want to say sidebars. really quick, yes.
1: this is not even relevant to the Constitution at all, but I remember being younger and wondering, I was like, how do they keep the animals in Yellowstone?
3: <laughs> big fences. Oh, big. And I, always, I was like, Oh, they must
1: put a really big fence around it. And it's kind of is so embarrassing that just now i'm realizing they don't keep the animals there's, in yellowstone not.
3: it's just a big piece of land <laughs> it is just a big piece of land
1: that is so embarrassing for me that's wow that's really funny now everyone's gonna know
2: <laughs> if it makes you feel any better there was i actually never looked this up to see if it was true but it was a big deal in wyoming for a while there was a, a big movement i think it was the second bush who found out Wyoming was getting rid of the cattle guards. They were just changing the road structure and and had to get rid of the cattle guards. And so there's a big push, like the national government, some some people in the legislative branch were worried about what the cattle guards would do and how their families would survive and how they would take like a ton of cattle guards were losing their jobs. And if we needed a government subsidy to take care of that before we could fix it, a cattle guard. Is a piece of metal that's in the ground that's graded so cattle can't cross it. So when you get into things you don't know about and make them a really big public, like Wyoming's well, firing their cattle guards, they didn't know what a cattle no. guard was. <laughs>
1: this is a literal newspaper article. They radical. thought I don't there was like know. people with like guns guarding the yes! cattle. Oh. Yes! <laughs> like cattle guards.
0: That's I- a dream <laughs> job right there.
1: I just don't understand
3: how you and grow up course, and don't know what a cattle guard is. George is from Texas,
2: which kind of shows a lot about the show that his if that is what he knows about cattle guards.
1: But that's what's so good about having so many people involved is. is because it lessens, like, the probability of making dumb mistakes like that goes way down. And that's why executive orders are an issue, in my opinion. But that's a big, that's a big different, like, tangent.
2: It is a different tangent. We got a tangent on that one. So that was Article 4, right? Local is important. If we proved that point. Nailed Super it. Super duper important. So, we
0: proved it with cattle guards. <laughs> that a, is like a core. That's, that's good
2: evidence. <laughs> <laughs> so Article 4 is a vertical separation of powers where we go from big government with a ton of people to small government. And it goes all the way down to you have nation, state, county, city, family. That is our vertical separation of powers. And we have to start at the bottom. And if we can't deal with it there, we go one level up. And if we can't deal with it there, we go one level up. And it's a very slow process so that hopefully we get solutions while we're dealing with each other before we ask someone else to take care of it for us.
3: Can we even add on to the vertical division of government? I would say the base level is self-government. Before even family government, it's being governed yourself, being able to do that yourself.
2: Which is such a gift in having a government who doesn't it's not set up in saying, this is what you do, but in saying, here's what governing means. And we each have to take all of the principles of the Constitution. They apply to every person and every interaction that you need a rulemaker and you need someone who makes decisions and you need to like think through consequences. Like that's what the whole process is. And that's what basically governing means.
3: So then there's also the horizontal separation, because we haven't talked about the executive or judicial branches yet, which is Article 2 and 3. yeah
1: um so article two talks about the executive branch which is the presidente and you know the president doesn't actually have or didn't have that much power like if you like look at the constitution okay let's break down that for a second because it's very very important i guess what, i shouldn't say it doesn't have that much they don't have as many split powers as the legislative that's branch does very not. true because yeah. mm-hmm. they do have a lot of executive comes from the word execute what does that mean the first thought you're having
2: is... To kill. Yes, to kill someone. <laughs> which is not wrong, but what is the... Why does that word... Why does execute also mean to kill? Uh, it's like mean?
0: ending something or like... It's
2: like a final decision. It's
0: like done.
2: Carrying it out. Yes. So it is it is the last thing. It is the final decision. It's the thing at the end, right. which is usually why it's killing someone. It's like the last thing. However, really it's saying I'm going to do this. And if I didn't do it, I will execute the law. Right. So... The legislative makes the laws. If we had a legislative branch without an executive branch or without some kind of executive power, then I can tell you what to do all day long and you do or don't have to do it. And there's nothing anybody can do about it. You don't have anything without accountability. You just have fluffy words like good intent. You know, the road to hell is played with good right, intentions. Yeah. That's what you have. So you have to have an executive branch. What the brilliant thing is that Locke thought of and he, pro- he like really gets on his soapbox about is that the legislative and the executive have to be split which has almost never been done before. A king is the legislative and the executive, which means he can tell you what to do and then decide who to punish and who not to punish, which is why you got to be in with the king or you got to like manipulate the system. And you can't do that if they're split. If they're split, then, you know, it's like cutting the cookie in half and letting someone else choose. If I'm making the law and I will also be punished for that law, I'm a little more careful about the law I make. And if I'm making a law and there's not going to be any punishment, then it doesn't matter what law I make. So the two being separated and working together are really, really important. And that's basically the only power he has is to execute the law.
0: Isn't the king all three? All three what? Of the branches.
2: Yes, he is. What is... Okay, so clarify that. What's branch three that we haven't talked about yet? Judicial. Yay. So what does that
1: mean? (sighs) Um... Well, I just think of I think of judges. I think of justice. It's it's to interpret the law. So it's to figure And I love that it's to treat us like individuals,
2: like you're responsible. Let's treat you like you're responsible instead of just assume you're stupid and punish you. We're going to take you to court and we're going to figure out the context and then say, yes, here's the law. But let's interpret it for this person and this situation. And then the judge gets to enforce the execution. Like, yes, you'll be punished. But in this certain way. Particular to this situation, which is another power of local government, is that every situation is treated like a new situation. There's no assumptions that we're just we act the same and we have the same intentions all the time. So empowering, so much responsibility. Very scary. So the judge gets to kind of figure out these the pieces or how to how to use the law. Okay, so what does it mean if the king is all three? If he decides the law, executes the law, and judges the circumstance of
0: the law. Well, I mean, at that point, then it's him, if he's both of those, he doesn't understand the situation well enough to be able to take care of it, but he hears the complaints that he wants to hear. So then he makes the law to stop the complaining, but he doesn't actually understand what that law was actually.
1: There's also no guarantee that he understands the law. Right. Is the law
3: even law anymore if it's one person, has all three?
2: One thing that Locke goes on and on about is that any kind of kingly law is arbitrary i think that's the word he says that the worst kind of law to be under is arbitrary law which is exactly what miss arneson is saying that does any of it exist if it's all in one person because it's totally arbitrary he can pick a law willy-nilly he can execute it for you but not for you he can judge like if he's judging the law like daniel said and and he doesn't know the circumstances or he doesn't understand he's just gonna like pick his buddy and let's move on right? right he can judge however he wants you cannot fight against arbitrary law.
0: So what about Article 7?
2: So Article 7 is the ratification of the Constitution. It means it's now law. You can talk about whatever you want, all you want, and it doesn't matter. It's a piece of paper. You can throw it away. Article 7 was when it was voted on in the Constitutional Convention, then it was sent out to each state, and each state had to meet in their own state governments and then vote on the Constitution and then send their votes back. And that's all it is. It just says we did it. Nice job for us, and we all voted yes. But it's important that they did that, again, because if they hadn't done that, they're just a king acting like they're a better king because we made laws. The fact that they actually honored each state and required, they among themselves required nine states in order to ratify the Constitution. They didn't say, let's get three states and then we're in right they didn't guarantee their own win is really putting them in honoring the document that they created and honoring the people that it was for and all it says is it passed we did it it's real And now it's a governing document.
0: So in the end, it's just keeping it from being fluffy words.
1: Exactly. Well, it's also, what's super important about it is they could have just, you know, they could have taken those votes and been like, cool. But the whole point is being like, hey, the people said this was okay. Right. Like this, it's bringing back the point like, this is not for us. This is for every current citizen of the United States of America and future.
2: Yes. Which makes the the government that they created could have been an aristocracy or an oligarchy where this group of people who got together to talk about it now runs the government. And what they did was, yes, we're the ones that wrote the piece of paper because it was really difficult, but that's not where this ends. It's really about everybody.
0: So Article 7 is the citizens telling the government what they could tell citizens they can't do, just like the relationship between citizens and legislature.
3: I love it. So all these people who signed it, they had the power to sign the Constitution because they were elected or assigned by their state yes. legislatures to go. And then they went back, and the legislature voted on it and said, yes, you now have our okay yes. to sign it. And those legislatures got their power by because they were elected by their people.
0: Oh, that makes sense. I thought they decided to sign it.
1: Does that mean that trying to abolish the Constitution, does that make it treason?
2: Um, Technically, yes. So this is an interesting concept because... Going against your government is treason, or saying that I don't want this particular but government. But in the is Declaration treason. of Independence, however, the Declaration of Independence is
1: in fact treason. It, exactly. And it also <laughs> says it also says it is your job, it is your duty if yes. your government is corrupt and evil, it is your duty as a people yes. to overthrow it. You're so smart. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what Jefferson and Locke especially
2: says about treason, about that idea, is that what I've done is I've given powers to my government, and I trust them to protect those powers. When they abuse those powers and I say, you don't get them anymore, that is not treason. It's standing up for my powers of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's telling you, you don't get to act that way. So it's a check on the government. If the government is virtuous and doing all that they should, and I go against that, that is treason. And that's what Jefferson is saying. He's not... He would say, "No, of course, this could be reinterpreted in any way you want. England considered it treason forever, and we decided it wasn't, right? It depends on
1: your perspective, for sure. Well, we won the war, so.
2: But Jefferson says, what we did was we tried everything we could to fix it. You have broken all the promises you've ever made. So what you're doing isn't governing. You're just oppressing. And leaving oppression is not treason.
1: It's responsible. Basically, if you're going to do something, win. <laughs> um, I guess that leads into what next episode is going to be about like modern events and like is the constitution still relevant why should i even care about it what is my role you know in the constitution because it's big and it's fancy and i'm like yes this is super empowering but like how how do i actually even do any of this and like are we even living up to it and honoring it
0: um asher if we could take if the listeners could take anything out of this podcast this episode what would you want them to take out of it
2: You are responsible for your actions, and you will receive consequences for your actions, and you need to accept them.
1: And Sarah, if you could challenge listeners to do something this week or for the rest of their lives, what would it be? Okay, it's going to go right along with what
3: Asher said. If you want to be responsible for your actions, you need to understand the principles behind them. So my challenge is to read the Declaration of Independence, and don't just read it. It's short. But really go through and as Fife would say, dredge it and understand every sentence and then write about it and pick out the founding principles. And as you write, start to examine yourself and if you really believe those principles and can act on them so that you can be responsible for the actions
1: that you take. That's awesome. And this is a two-part series. So come back for the next episode, which is going to go right along with everything we talked about. But until then, you can follow us on Instagram at The Paradigm Pod. Or if you have any questions, suggestions, email us at podcast at paradigmhigh.org.
0: Thanks for joining us, guys. Keep being amazing and joining in the great conversation of ideas.